Welcome to the PokePress Digest Podcast, a Pokemon news magazine show. Here you'll find some of the best content offered by our site. For more, visit us at pokepress.blogspot.com. This time we have two segments. In the first, Anne from PKB Podcast is back again to debate the merits of the English and Japanese ending themes of Pokemon Heroes. These two songs provide quite a contrast, so you should find it interesting. Our second segment is a series of interviews from the recent Oceania International Championship in Melbourne, Australia. I had a chance to interview some of the top finishers, as well as a collector of Pokemon merchandise. Thanks. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich, here at the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm on the phone with Anne from PQP Podcast, and as you probably guessed, this is the next in our series of comparisons of the ending themes of the various Pokemon movies. This time we're on Movie 5, Pokemon Heroes, the Latios and Latias movie, in case you can't remember where the numbers go at this point. So for this movie, on the Japanese side, we have You're Not Alone, and then on the English side, there's, there's a couple songs in there. And per our usual rules, we're going to sort of focus on the first one, although we'll certainly be talking about all of them. It's a version of You and Me and Pokemon, but it's not the version from the Totally Pokemon or Pokemon 3 albums. It's actually from the Pokemon Live stage show, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that as part of this discussion. But uh, we start on the Japanese side, and Anne, uh, what can you tell us about You're Not Alone? Um, okay, so You're Not Alone, also known as Hitoribochi Janai, uh, was a collaboration between Miyazawa Kazufumi and Koba, um, who is also known as Kobayashi Yashiro. Um, and it's a really interesting collaboration because Koba is really well known for his accordion playing and was named Composer of the Year by the Japanese Award Academy, I think, the year right before Pokemon Heroes released in Japan. Um, and then you combine that with Miyazawa, who founded a band called The Boom, and he's known for fusing the island and folk music of Okinawa with modern pop and rock elements and kind of preserving the culture of the island. So you get this really fascinating um, collaboration when those two artistic senses come together. Yeah, uh, however, although he has an Okinawan background, this song is definitely not Okinawan in style. It's definitely... No, it is not. <laughs> definitely ties into the overall style of the movie of Altomar, which is based on Venice, or more generally, Italy. Do you think this song was uh, written for this particular movie, or was it something... I guess the style is definitely in tune with this movie. Uh, wh what do you know about the, the song itself, though? Given the presence of the accordion, I'm, yeah, it definitely fits. I think this is where the Japanese side stopped doing their movie ending themes in house, like writing them in, you know, with the composers of like the series music and such. I think this is where they start contracting out to other artists. So they obviously got Miyazawa and Koba for this movie to do a song for the movie ending theme. But who knows to what degree they collaborated with the director or if they like saw storyboards or the finished script before sitting down to write the lyrics. But they were definitely hired to do this song specifically for the movie. Um, and I believe Koba composes a lot of other music in the score as well. That, that might even be his accordion playing. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot of accordion um, in, the, in the, the score of this movie, as well as the, 
The opening theme, which is yet another version of Aim to be a Pokemon Master, also has uh, some very nice accordion work, and we may talk a little bit about that uh, later in this this episode. But uh, any other sort of notes about production you wanted to share? Not much, except for... I, you said something earlier about how, you know, this doesn't really have any Okinawan musical influence, but I did kind of want to point out that Miyazawa, in, you know, trying to capture the feel of the island and that culture he grew up in, he also does some work like with a Brazilian artist and Caribbean um, and, you know, just other global artists in the world and kind of infusing their cultural music into like, again, the pop and the rock and, you know, more modern elements. So I do think he brings some interesting skills to the table as they're trying to capture this not Venice sort of musical landscape. Yeah, like I said, though, I guess there might be some similarities, and we'll certainly talk about the musical stylings more as this uh, yeah, this yeah. discussion goes on. But for now, let's flip back to the English side. So, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the English credit songs, none of them were specifically written for this movie. They're all pre-existing stuff that had been released before. Now, the first song in the end credits is You and Me and Pokemon, but like I said earlier, it's not the version from Totally Pokemon, it's n- or Pokemon 3. This is the version from the Pokemon Live stage show. And that was a stage show started in 2000 um, and went through like 2001, 2002. It toured across the United States. I think there were plans to bring it overseas, but financially it didn't uh, do all that great. But uh, as far as the show itself, it was sort of this um, you know stage musical with a lot of Pokemon puppets and then live actors who would play, you know, Ash, Misty, Brock, Team Rocket, uh, Giovanni, and a number of other characters from the Pokemon universe. And the, the soundtrack features a lot of songs from To Be a Master, and it also features actually a couple songs that would later be moved over to Totally Pokemon and Pokemon 3, including You and Me and Pokemon. Now, most of the ones that were moved over are, are fairly similar. Uh, Two Perfect Girls is pretty similar. Pikachu, very similar. You and Me and Pokemon, very different. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I kind of wanted to sort of set the stage there. Like I said, if you want to know more about the Pokemon Live show itself, um, a couple years ago I did an interview with John Siegler, um, one of the co-writers of uh, many of the opening themes from the opening seasons. He worked uh, extensively on that project, and we talk a lot about it. Uh, unfortunately, the interview has a few technical problems with its audio, but it is a good listen and has a lot of great information, and I uh, certainly hope you take a, a listen to that at some point. But as far as the show itself, and I don't think either of us had actually seen the Pokemon Live stage show, is that correct? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, either. I, I, I kind of wanted to see it. It came to, like, um, Chicago and Milwaukee. But um, I think my mom wasn't interested. Um, you know, these shows are are kind of tend to be pretty cheesy. You know, these shows based on a a major media franchise, and uh, the music on the on the show is very uh, emotional, <laughs> even more so than some of the original versions. It would have been cool though. Like, if anyone has been able to see it, like we would love to hear what your experience was like. Yeah, and also. Um, I should point out that if you are trying to get the actual soundtrack, like an actual physical copy uh, of the Pokemon Live soundtrack, uh, good luck. You're going to need it. Um, actually, I have a copy of it. It cost me over $100. This is one of the few pieces of Pokemon music that is actually 
truly valuable, um, just because there weren't a lot of them sold. And of course, you know, Pokemon being Pokemon, there's still a lot of interest. Uh, you can look up the tracks in places if you are so inclined. Uh, nowhere official, but you get the idea. But as far as acquiring an actual copy of the soundtrack, that's going to cost you. And they don't come up on eBay very often either. I've only seen a couple over the years. I keep dreaming that I'll find one in a thrift store from, you know, someone who just didn't know what they had. So in this particular case, we don't know. Obviously, the song wasn't written for this movie. We don't know what their exact selection criteria or why they didn't go through the process of writing a new song or, or finding something that had been previously unreleased. But in this case, that's what we have on the English side. We have a medley of, of pre-existing tracks. So now let's sort of talk about the, the musical stylings of each of these songs in depth. Uh, first of all, Japanese side, You're Not Alone. It has sort of this um, pun intended, uh, whirlwind type of feel to it to me. It sort of uh, starts up and keeps kind of kind of going through there. Uh, and can you sort of describe, reminding us of how the, how the movie wraps up, uh, how this is introduced there? Yeah, it's so interesting because the ending scene of the movie, the music stops completely and it's no sound. Only a few characters have lines and there's long pauses. It's, you know, it's a very soft and serious moment. And then once the music starts up, it's almost a little bit jarring. Like every single time I forget that that song's going to play and that it's going to be so quick and, and, you know, the melodies going all over the place. Um, but then it kind of, you get used to it, I guess, and it becomes a bit more of a mellow song. Like, it doesn't have, like, a real driving pop percussion, and, it, you know, it kind of smooths out a bit more. Yeah, so, you know, we've had uh, the infamous kissing scene, and then Ash gets that gift, and we open that up. Um, it has the picture of him and Pikachu, and, uh, you know, then this song starts up. Uh, does it sort of keep a, a relatively consistent uh, feel through it, uh, and you're just getting used to it? Is that is that what I'm hearing from you, Anne? Yeah, like, the accordion and kind of the the score of the song is very fast and goes all over the place, but it never really builds in the way that some other songs would, where like it gets to a climax and suddenly we're going faster and the bass is pounding. It's not that type of a song. But there is a lot musically going on. So like I said, the beginning really throws you because you came from silence. But once you get over that that first hump of suddenly there's sound in my life, it, it's really a much more slower song. Obviously a very different dynamic from what uh, how the song was presented in the, uh, the English side. Um, what about some of the lyrics there? What is this song sort of actually talking about? Okay, so this song, the lyrics are depressing. Oh my gosh. It, it's sort of a bittersweet, like almost staring down the apocalypse, which is weird because we just saved the town. But it's like, even if we get lost in a world that can't bear its conflicts, and even if we're sucked into a future where hatred flows, it's like, you're not alone. There are other people who need you, so don't lose your shining heart. It is an, it's an inspiring song about, you know, kind of finding your inner light and, you know, realizing that you, you're still connected to other human beings, even in the midst of horrible conflict or, or the times when you think you're the most alone are the times when you can reach out to people and others can reach out to you. But it's really, really depressing. <laughs> Kind of a, a strange dynamic for a Pokemon song, you know. We don't, especially like I said, at the end of a movie. Very much so. 
Yeah, I, I enjoy it, but I, I do find, like the opening riff, it's jarring. Does that sort of change? What, what kind of feeling do you get after, like, after watching through the end credits and all that stuff? Uh, how does that leave you feeling after all of that? Kind of conflicted. Like, I think Bittersweet sums it up because when you see, when you hear the song with the images of, you know, Latias kind of getting over the death of her brother and moving on with her life and Bianca painting and, you know, kind of finding a peace and, you know, the town moves on and rebuilds and takes down the DMA machine and Ash and Pikachu are lovey-dovey and go on their journey. You know, we see all these happy images of people kind of moving on from the chaos and the sadness of a legit character death. You are kind of given a feeling of hope. But again, the lyrics are very affecting because they are quite sad and bleak. Like They talk about something happy, but the point of view of the singer is somebody who's going through a dark time or knows that they will go through a dark time and is preparing for it. Yeah, like I said, every time I listen to this song, it, you know, the first couple times I listened to it, it really did not jive with me. I'm still not sure I really like it. I, I think it's okay to me as long as I don't try to think about the movie at the same time. It it has this very odd emotional effect. I think I've listened to it a couple more times today. I've I've sort of made a little bit of peace with it, but it's it's still not really what I expected there. Um you obviously had mentioned some of the characters. Do you think this might have been a better song to use in some other context related to the movie, maybe in the marketing, maybe in the movie itself, anything like that? Yeah, like, this is the kind of song that is a lovely image song in kind of the middle of the CD. It, it's the sort of song that I, I can definitely see ways it does apply to the movie, and I can see, like, I do appreciate its artistic vision, I guess. It, like, I love this song, but I don't know if that exact place, like right at the very end of the movie, was the right spot for it. Like, even if it were the second song that played under the credits, I almost think I would like it better. But when I think about it, sometimes I wonder if that's like my sensibility of like, I want our happy ending to land and like, I want to be happy. And there are some dark things in this movie. So sometimes... It could be that this was exactly what they intended for us, but I don't know if it works for me. <laughs> we did talk in a previous episode about another Japanese song that maybe wasn't quite the ending song tonally that we wanted. That was Twat Ma for, for the second movie. How do you think these compare? Are they perhaps slightly unfitting in different ways, or how do you feel about that? I think unfitting in different ways, because Twat Ma, like, it didn't seem to quite fit... But I don't think that was necessarily the intention. Like, I think they were going for, like, we want to have a hit single sort of ending theme. Whereas this, I feel like Miyazawa and Koba were like, we have this thing we want to say. And, you know, we this is the what we took from the movie. And this is what we want to convey. Like, I feel like they definitely have a specific vision they're going for. And they're not concerned about, you know, how well the song's going to sell. Or, you know, marketing or anything like that. So I, I feel that they're kind of, we're trying to accomplish two different goals. And so they're, they're, they don't fit for slightly different reasons. 
Twaima was a little, it didn't fit because it was a little bit sparse on how, how it fit with the movie and, you know, its theme. This, this is a very deep and dense song. Like effort went into making this song for this movie. I wouldn't accuse them of, you know, slacking off or anything with this. Like I said, it just doesn't seem quite like what I would have expected. You know, if you played this for someone and told them it was the ending theme, they might not believe you, other than the fact that it kind of sounds like it belongs with this movie in terms of the instrumentation. Yeah. It, yeah, you said it's a, it's a song that kind of, again, is just conflicting because you can tell that everything they did was deliberate. This is the ending theme they wanted to make, but I'm not so sure it works for a general audience. And I don't know if that means that I need to step up my cultural palette and, you know, my appreciation of deep thinking, or if they maybe missed the mark just a little bit. And this should have been like a different song in the CD and something else should have been the ending theme. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and as someone like me who has very little Japanese knowledge, just listening to it, it just sounds really chaotic uh, in, in many ways. And, and like I said, it doesn't seem like it really resolves all that much just from listening to the sounds. So for very much a contrast, you know, we go back to the English side, you and me and Pokemon. First off, let's sort of compare the version from Pokemon Live that was used in the credits here versus the, the more commonly well-known version from, uh, from, from Totally Pokemon, Pokemon 3. How would you sort of compare and contrast those two versions of you and me in Pokemon? Um, well, this one wins, just to begin. Like, there's something about this that's like, it, well, for starters, this one feels like a movie ending theme, which is, I know it was made for Pokemon Live. I think it's actually an opening theme. Yeah. So, but it, it has that sense of grandeur that we typically associate with ending themes and, it's got this sort of build to it that has never failed to make me cry when I watch this movie in English. Like I, my, my cold black heart gets a little bit fuzzy because yeah, it's, it's just got a musical sensibility that like takes you on that journey of like, and we're going up the cliff and now we're flying and now, and then, you know, the denouement and, and. Yeah, it it just fits the structure of a song that you expect to be at this point in a in a film. Yeah, no, the the version from Pokemon Live is 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 slower. It's more grandiose um, is maybe the word I'm looking for there, and it sort of uh, has m- more movement. I guess you want to say to it, um, more of an open feeling to it than the the more pop drive version on Totally Pokemon. I like both versions of the song. But if I were choosing, you know, if I had that song and I had to choose one of these two versions to use in the credits here, it's definitely going to be the Pokemon Live version. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, I think as a result, you know, this isn't the only song in the credits, but I think it gives a more natural ending to the movie going from that scene, you know, in the boat and, and whatnot to this, I think, feels a bit more natural. Would you say that as well? Yeah. Yeah, it gives us the happy ending that we were all expecting and that kind of emotional catharsis. As we move on through the credits. Although I, I suppose one of the disadvantages of this is that you and me and Pokemon is, it's about Pokemon in general. It doesn't really have any direct connection to this movie. It obviously doesn't have the instrumentation of the score in the movie. You know, there, there really was no way they were going to, to get that. Um, is that sort of a, a detriment to it in any way? Or are you still okay with that? Um, I'm okay with it. But I think, yeah, it's a missed opportunity. Definitely. I mean... 
because I do get such a happy feeling from this song and, and it does move me emotionally, it's one of those things that like I would let it go. But you're right. Like, I think if they had found a way to be able to make it tie in a bit more musically or something to that effect or, or have a song that fit more lyrically, that would have just been a plus. I'm not sure how much more there is to say about it. Like I said, uh, it has a, a great feeling. Some of the other Pokemon live music is a little more uh, corny and, and definitely would not have been useless for us. But I think uh, this version of You and Me and Pokemon was a good choice if they either didn't have the time or something fell through and they just didn't have an original song to put in there. This was probably a pretty good choice. Can you think of anything else that would have been available at the time you might have rather seen there? I, I can't think of anything that would have fit the movie any better. There are a lot of other songs like through Totally Pokemon or stuff that could have worked. Like, you know, biggest part of my life and never too far from home. Like they they have a lot of very sweet songs that are similarly applicable, but I don't think any of them would have been a step above what we have with you and me and Pokemon. Yeah, I think that's kind of the determination here as well. Like I said, we don't know exactly what happened on the dub side if they had something else in mind and it fell through or if uh, this was a budget constraint or something like that. But yeah, I, I I definitely get a better feeling putting this in there than I, I think I would have had the Japanese version been in there, or like a, even a translated version. Actually, I think that might have been, for me, as someone who didn't know that Japanese, it might have uh, come across even, even stranger. Possibly, but y this might have been a song worth trying something like that on because as you said it kind of seems to go all over the place in a way like with the way the lyrics are set if you took out the japanese lyrics and just had the arrangement the accompaniment you could actually probably put some english lyrics to that whether they were kind of a a, a translation or or taken from the original japanese text or if you kind of just same same melody different lyrics or something like that different melody on top of the arrangement. I, I think this is one song where you probably could have tried something like that and gotten away with it in a way that you couldn't with some of the previous ending themes where we've thought about that. Yeah, I mean, that might be an interesting challenge project for somebody. Yeah, again, we don't know what the dub situation was, if that was something they could have done or not. But If you really want to push yourself, though, that's, that's out there if you ever want to try. <laughs> Cover artists, get on it. <laughs> But uh, as it stands, that's the choice we have is sort of a, a song that tonally maybe doesn't fit in, in the spot it was placed in, but lyrically at least has a decent connection to the movie, versus on the English side we have a song that tonally at least seems to, to fit that, that space, but lyrically, you know, because it was pre-existing, wasn't written for the movie, and doesn't have any particular ties to the story or anything like that. So that's sort of the decision we have with this one. Um, based on that information, uh, let's go straight to the third part here where we sort of decide uh, which one we, we kind of like better. Uh, which of these two songs do you think you prefer in this space? I still haven't decided. Um, I think Hitoriboji uh, Janai, You're Not Alone, that song speaks to a side of Pokemon that I think is more appreciated by us older fans um, in that like, even when we save the world and get our happy ending, there's, there's like some darkest pitch stuff going on in the Pokemon world, and it's not all fun and battles and idyllic. And we did just see a character die, and I think it's one of the first movie character deaths where somebody stays dead. 
So since that's not something Ash is often shown to be thinking about, there's a part of me that appreciates it coming out in some way now. Um, and again, finding the hope in the hopeless situations and not being able to control the world around you, um, but being able to help the person right next to you. Like, those are some of the constant but lesser sung themes in Pokemon. I think, and since artistically, Hitori Bochi Zenai is just a gangbuster song, um, I think I'm going to give it to that. But if the English side had had an original song, I think I would have given it to them. Like, just because this song is so weird in where it's placed, as much as I really do love it as a song. Like, all the, the English side just had to come up with something original that sort of tied in and I probably would have given it to them otherwise. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a difficult choice. I'm going to actually go with you and me in Pokemon just because, in part I, I assume because my Japanese knowledge is so limited so I can't really appreciate the lyrical part. I did read a translation and I, I do see some of those connections there. And I do appreciate what you just said there about sort of, you know, at the time, might have been something that we didn't uh, really appreciate, but maybe now we have a little more appreciation that in the Pokemon world, things are usually quite happy, but, you know, there are sacrifices that are made sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely when this movie came out, I would have been with you. I would have gone you and me in Pokemon all the way. And I also agree with you that had the English side done um, an original song with maybe similar tonal qualities and production, uh, that sort of tied into the lyrics or into the plot of the movie more so or the characters and so on. I, th I think that would probably be a, a really a much easier choice, but I'm still going to have to side on the English side this time just because, yeah, the, I don't hate the Japanese song, but whenever I listen to it, whenever I try to connect it to the movie in my head, in, in terms of imagery, it gives me a little bit of an unsettled feeling. Like I said, I don't hate it, but I'm not really comfortable with it either. And then that's, I think, kind of where that one just uh, does. I I, I kind of actually would have loved to hear like an original song that sort of talked about the 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 confusion between Latias and Bianca, you know, Latias taking her form and stuff like that. That might be an interesting subject for a song at some point or something they could have pulled an existing song for that would sort of match up with, now that I think about it. Oh my gosh, I would have loved that. Like... Because it's it's kind of a theme of the movie that doesn't get called into attention much is the fact that Latias, being a Pokemon, fits herself into the human world. And that's not something we see from any Pokemon, but especially a legendary. Usually they're very close-minded and like humans are separate. I would have loved to see a song from Latias's point of view. And I mean, I guess this song could be as well in her sadder moods, but... <laughs> But you're right, no, a, a song uh, with a slightly different quality to it about one of the many other topics in the movie that were, yeah, oh, that would be so wonderful. So, yeah, I guess it's, I guess saying that, it's kind of a shame that they weren't still doing these full-on soundtracks like they did with, like, the, the first and second movie. I think they could have mm -hmm. picked some elements from this film. So maybe that's the, the true answer to this question, is that uh, there was actually more stuff to work with than you could ever make one song out of. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I do love with the English side that, you know, even if they didn't come up with an original one, that they were able to... Um, find the song that kind of fit what we were all feeling at that moment musically. 
Because like I said, it just, it does move me so much emotionally. So I do kind of admire that whatever they were working with on their side, they found something that, you know, did have an impact. Yeah, I mean, this, I, I kind of realized as I was doing research for this, this would be a very musically interesting movie to discuss. And as we mentioned earlier, there are a couple other English songs in the end credits, uh, Pikachu, The Time Has Come, and uh, like some stuff from Pokemon Live uh, towards the end there. You had mentioned uh, Koba earlier, and he did some of the score. Uh, so he did a lot of accordion stuff. There's always the, there's that big scene they have where Ash is sort of walking around the town, kind of getting his bearings, uh, trying to find Brock and Misty. And uh, that, that, that theme there is amazing. I, I do, that's one of my favorite score elements from any Pokemon movie ever. I, I, you, you feel that way as well? Best musical cue ever in a Pokemon movie beats even, I think, Lugia's song. Maybe, maybe. At, um, at least they are in the running together. They are they have made it to the finals. Yeah. But on the flip side, though, there are orchestral elements to the score as well. But, you know, everyone remembers the accordion but there's, there's, there's the, the, the scene where Latias is um, dragging ass uh, on his water chariot trying to get to the museum or whatever towards the end of the movie. There's also Annie and Oakley's theme and, and a couple other orchestral score elements. It's kind of interesting. It, got, it has those two sides, but they, they actually do work together well as part of a score. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. And uh, you know, a number of other uh, musical elements. Of course, the opening is, on the Japanese side, it's uh, yet another redo of uh, Aim to Be a Pokemon Master, this time with accordion accompaniment from Koba, and uh, I, one of my favorite versions of that song, I have to say. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah, I like it a little more than the one in Movie 4. Now, of course, if they had used the actual season theme, that would have been Ready Go!, any idea, any thoughts on why that wasn't done for this movie? Like, I can't say except to maybe kind of go back to what we said in our previous episode when we were talking about Mizase Pokemon Master, because for most of the world, that's the Pokemon theme, not, you know, the English one that we've come to know and love. So unless they were, like, just trying to capture that feel of, like, this is the song that encapsulates Pokemon, this is the one that everybody knows... Like, other than that, I can't really think of a reason because Ready Go is an awesome song um, and deserved its its time in the sun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if they tried it and they just couldn't get it to match up or if maybe, you know, Koba got involved and he said, hey, I really want to do an alternative mix of Aim to Be a Pokemon Master instead. And like you said, in, in Japan at least, uh, much like the English Pokemon theme, very heavily associated there, so maybe they were okay, even though it had been used in the previous movie. But it'd be interesting to know. Uh, definitely yeah. there. Uh, on the English side, we have a, an extended version of I Believe, uh, David Rolfe's second theme contribution. This time, it's it's not really... The instrumentation is more or less the same, but there's just more of it that goes through that scene. Uh, what did you think of its use here? I really like it. It just... It, it gives me that feel that, you know, Ash catch him in the middle of some kind of battle, in this case, a water poke water chariot race like it just gets me pumped up and ready for the movie it does everything it was supposed to do 
Yeah, it's, it's really a shame that version of it has never been commercially released. Um, I, I really, you know, I plunked down money for that uh, rather easily, but yeah, yeah unfortunately, yeah. the uh, the Pokemon X album from uh, 2006 2007 uses the the shortened TV version. That's that's kind of a shame. And then, as far as the main movie goes, there's one more musical element we should probably talk about. When Ash gets to the part of town that's sort of hidden away where Latios and Latias kind of hang out when they're not out and about the town and whatnot, uh, we get this song called Secret Garden, which is it's performed by a Japanese uh, singer, um, which is kind of makes it not super intelligible, to be honest. I do appreciate their effort, as always. This was used in both versions. Uh, do you, what do you think of the significance of that, Anne? Well, I love that they were able to keep the song for both versions. Because I, I just love, as much as I love the opportunity to try new things with adaptations to different languages, I do love when our fandom can kind of become a bit more of a unified global thing. And having insert songs that we share instead of, composing two completely different things kind of helps with that. Um, and also, I think this might come down to personal taste, but I, I'm so used to listening to Japanese music and artists who, you know, sing with a lot of English. So to me, it doesn't bother me at all. Like until you brought it up that I didn't actually think like, oh yeah, the pronunciation is a little off. Um, so like, I, I just really like the song. It's, it's beautiful. It's just kind of nice to have in the background. Yeah, it's definitely a nice song. I mean, uh, there are times I I'm, I do prefer for them to try something different in the dub, notably with the, the ending song here. I'm kind of glad they didn't try to brute force that one, even though I do think the Japanese ending is, is a pretty decent song. But uh, in this case, it, it was an interesting thing. It sort of foreshadows what we would see in movie six, where both the song from the short and the song from the end of the main movie are going to be carried over and translated. It, it, it's actually, you know... I, I, I know there are a lot of folks who says, why can't they do that with every movie? Well, it's it's harder than you think. There's a lot of contractual stuff when you go across there. And, you know, when you translate a song, oftentimes the original writer will want to be involved in some way or have some sort of, you know, veto power or something like that. So it, it's probably harder than a lot of folks think. Yeah, I think that's true. Sometimes it's not possible and sometimes it doesn't fit the vision because the fact is just by virtue of saying things in English we come at things from a different angle so sometimes certain projects it's just not going to have the same feel um if you just simply just translate the lyrics or you know take the same song and pay cut and paste so taking things on a case by case basis though i think the the secret garden song really did work very well in both versions Totally, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Obviously, they may have considered replacing it at some point. We'll never know with what. Um, they may never have written anything in the first place, but I did want to point that out. Like I said, I, I do see valid cases for both approaches, so I'm, I'm never I'm, I'm never too miffed um, on a song replacement. Um, but this is the first time we've had like a song that got kept, besides you know, kind of an instrumental score, isn't it? Um, I think the uh, Rocket Don uh, song, the, the Team Rocket Japanese song that you can hear from the first season, has an English version that was, I think they wrote oh, totally new right. lyrics and that's stuff. That's right. They're, yeah, they're, so that's, mm. that's one of the other exceptions there. And a number of score elements, of course. 
you know, it, it varies depending on the season and, uh, you know, things like that. Um, there's a lot of, uh, differences. Yeah, I probably would have been okay in this particular case had they tried to write something new, but, you know, having heard it with this, I'm okay with that as well. And I understand that there are folks on both sides of these types of discussions. Well, there's one more part we should definitely talk about, and that's the short. Um, it's called Camp Pikachu. Now, if you saw this movie in theaters, the short wasn't part of it. It's only on the DVD and only on, like, the original DVD. If you get one of the more recent releases, those don't have the shorts for the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies. It, it, we're not sure exactly what's going on there. I, I have a, a feeling they might be contractually separate at this point, and that's why some of the new re-releases don't have them. But in any case, it's the Camp Pikachu short, and it has a very kind of... Not not Western isn't the right word, in terms of, like, you know, the Western United States, but I mean in terms of sort of the the folk type of, of thing, bluegrass maybe a little bit in there. Is that sort of the feel you got with, the, with that short? Yeah, definitely. It's it, very different from the rest of the film. That's, that's sort of par for the course with a, a lot of these. You know, the opening song is sort of the same. I think they have the same backing on both, but they, they rewrote it for the English version because the Japanese version is what called Aim for That Hell. Yeah. And the English one is uh, Camp Pikachu. I believe it's uh, Jim Malone is the vocalist for that one. How would you sort of compare the the two different songs there, even though they have sort of the same backing uh, instrumentation? Oh, they're kind of going for a similar feel. Like, the songs are just both about having a fun time camping. The Japanese one has a second verse where... They where, where the title comes from, where it's like, no matter how small the steps will surely arrive someday, seems to be going for a slightly bigger theme than you might have guessed from this cutesy little kid song. Um, but it it's not like it's a big part of the song. They're both basically just cute little fun songs that the kids can can sing and get get excited about. And speaking of things that were sort of kept from the Japanese version, the the short in credits use the instrumental version of this song. I, I'm not sure exactly how to say the name. It's uh, Pokutari Monstuari. Is that is that relatively close, Anne? Pokutari Monstuari translates to something like pocketing, monstering, and it's it's basically just a cute, ridiculous song. Thank you, Akihito Toda and Hirokazu Tanaka. We've talked about them before. This is their doing. Yeah, it's just a fun, ridiculous little song. Yeah, I do like the instrumentation there. Even the instrumental version, I'd say it comes off sounding just really, really nice and, and pleasant. And I think it's good for the the short uh, in terms of like an, an end credits song. Um, yeah, the music's super fun. All right. Well, I think that pretty much covers it for the all the music associated with Movie 5. There's there's quite a bit uh, that we went over there. And uh Quite a quite an interesting uh, movie musically, I would say. I was listening, like I said, to the Japanese uh, album, and just going over that, I was surprised by the diversity of sounds, and yet it all still kind of feels like a, a single product. Even when you you know have the the dubbing uh, process go through it, it still sounds pretty cohesive. Would you say so? Doesn't it though? Yeah, this this movie is just so charming in its its presentation and it's a work of art and the music is a huge part of that. Definitely. Definitely. So that kind of wraps up the fifth movie. We will be getting to the sixth movie eventually, but since this is the last of the original series movies, we decided that for our next episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. 
Ann and I have each picked out one of our favorite musical groups that has never done a Pokemon song. And uh, we're, we're picking out three songs from that artist that we think might have worked as a Pokemon song. And we're going to sort of each listen to each other's selections. And in the next episode, we're going to discuss them and sort of talk about um, what we thought and where we think they really would work. Um, Anne, why don't you go first? What group and uh, which songs did you pick out? Okay, I went with my favorite band in the whole wide world. Um, I went with Perfume, the techno-pop group from Japan. Um, and my three songs are Dream Fighter, One Millimeter, and Mirai no Museum. Well, as I've mentioned before, I don't have a huge Japanese knowledge, but I still definitely look forward to listening to those and, and finding out what those are. And uh, on my side, uh, I picked out, as you may have guessed uh, from my musical taste, In Excess. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the band, it's not spelled uh, as two words. It's one word, I-N-X-S. They're a band from Australia. And uh, some of you might remember them from about a decade ago. They had that reality show trying to replace their lead singer. So the songs I picked were This Time from the Listen Like Thieves album, Kick from the album of the same name, and one of their later albums has a song called Us. It's on the Switch album. And those are the three ones I chose, and we're going to talk about those during our next episode before we move on to sort of the advanced generation movies. Until then, you know, like I said, look those songs up. They should all be relatively available on iTunes and, and some other places, so you shouldn't have to look too hard to find those. But thank you very much, Anne. Oh, thank you. It was super fun. This has been Stephen Reich from the PokePress Studios in Madison, Wisconsin, on the phone with Anne talking about the music from the fifth Pokemon movie. Hi folks, Steven here. Before we start the interview from Australia, I wanted to let you know that I goofed on two of the names. The VGC winner is Zoe Lu, not Low, and Poke Collection's name is Asad, not Asan. Apologies to both of them. Hi, I'm Steven Reich here at the Melbourne Park Function Center in Melbourne, Australia, at the Pokemon International Championship 2017 for the Oceania region. I'm here with Pablo Meza, who is the second place finisher in the trading card game Masters division of this weekend's competition. And Pablo, uh, first of all, where are you from and how'd you get into Pokemon? I'm from Mexico, and I got into Pokemon through the video game like almost 20 years ago. Great to hear that. All right. Well, the deck you played for this tournament was Decidueye GX, which is obviously, you know, one of the new ones from the Sun and Moon, one of the decks to come out of that. First of all, why did you choose that deck for this tournament? Well, uh, Decidueye has a big advantage in that there's a stadium that allows it to bypass the evolutions rules, so you can get it out on turn one without the need of waiting the normal one turn per evolution. So that's a really big advantage. And then there's also the Vileplume card, which pairs really well with it because it's also a grass-type Pokemon, can also skip those evolution rules and really limits what your opponent can do throughout a game. Yeah, that's the combo that this deck uses. It has the, the Vile Plume to shut off item cards, and then uh, Decidueye GX has some interesting abilities that we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. All right, so some other cards in the deck we should probably talk about. One of them is actually a Meowth card, which is used uh, a bit tactically. Can you sort of explain what that is? Well, the Meowth deals 
50 damage to any Pokemon you want that already has damage counters. And then the CGI's ability allows you to place two damage counters wherever you want. So combined, they deal 70 damage to any Pokemon you want. And placing those damage counters and knowing where to place them is really important. Yeah, so how do, you don't have to obviously go into every scenario because every matchup is going to be different there, but what are some of the general criteria you use to decide when you use that ability where to put the counters? Well, usually have to assess what threats your opponent has that can allow him to win the game, and therefore you try to, to KO them before they, they become a real threat. And there's also the fact that you have to evaluate if you can KO them in time or if you're better off targeting lower HP Pokemon such as Shaman EX, which everybody's running and you can easily KO as they have a lower HP. So you have to do that balance between what's threatening me and can they threaten me in time before I KO the other Pokemon? How many price cards do I win? There's a lot of factors that go into, into making those micro decisions of where to place the damage counters. Sounds like something that takes a lot of practice to, to get good at there. All right. Well, why don't you tell the folks at home what worked well for the deck in this tournament? Well, the deck, what worked well was the pairing of Desirjai Valblum is super strong because Desirjai is a really big HP Pokemon. Valblum limits what your opponent does. And the extra damage counters allows you to, even if the game slows down to like a drawing only one card per turn and not using any item cards, you are still putting a lot of pressure through the ability. So that ability is what makes the, the deck really work. And then you have really good uh, cost-effective attackers such as Meowth and such as Lugia EX as well. Yeah, you do need to uh, have a little bit of type diversity in that deck. So that's where the Meowth and Lugia EX come in handy. All right, so in the finals, you were paired against a, a guy who was using uh, a Volcanion deck, which, you know, just on the face of it, is definitely a tough matchup. What kind of happened? Uh, let the folks at home know about that. Well, yeah, Volcanion is a tough matchup just on paper because your biggest Pokemon has a weakness to fire, but a lot depends on, on Vileplume. The coin flip to decide who goes first is very big in, in how the matchup plays out because if you allow Volcanion to have one turn of item cards, they can just completely demolish you. So going first and getting that turn one Vileplume is the most crucial aspect of the matchup and also finding your non-fire type weak attackers such as Lugia EX and such as Meowth, so that you can put even more pressure on the bench. Yeah, so in the first game, uh, if, if the folks at home watched that, they would see that you did go first, but you ran into some trouble there. What, what kind of happened? Well, I, I had to discard a lot of resources early on to find the Vileplume, and I kept using draw cards, I kept using Shamans and Sycamores, but I was never able to draw into uh, Dartrix, the stage one of my Decidueye, so... I had the Decidueyes, I had the Rowlet, I simply couldn't find the middle stage in order to get to the Decidueye and have those extra damage counters help me out in order to get all my opponent's Pokemon. He had one Volcanion at 10 HP left, he had another one at 40 HP left, and so in the end, uh, even though you lock them, like they still have a lot of energy and they still have supporters, so they will eventually draw something to threaten you. And without the extra damage counters from Decidueye's ability, I just couldn't keep up. 
Yeah, that's uh, something you can definitely run into. And, and now in the second game, you got a, a lock very quickly and were able to basically shut your opponent down. Third game, not only were you going you know, second because uh, you had won the second game and the, your opponent, as usual, elects to go first, you just could not get any lock. They had not only just one turn, they had several turns. At that point, you kind of just uh, knew you had to, to sort of give up and, and move on, huh? Yeah, um, like that game, I had the Decidui, the full Decidui line ready on turn one, but I had no draw supporters, no ultra balls, no trainer's mail to search out Shaman. I, I had nothing else, so... Um, and he got the perfect setup of a single uh, baby Volcanian and two Volcanian EXs on the bench, and they were all—they were both already powered up by turn two. So there, there was no humanly possible way I could have won that match. Yeah, kind of a bummer there. Is there anything you might change about the deck going forward with it? With how the meta game is probably going to develop from this point onwards, there will probably be a very big need to tech for the mirror matches. Meowth, as the tournament progressed, it became even more and more important. For some reason, Meowth came in super clutch today. All three, all three matches were... The first two were won solely by Meowth, and you saw how important it was in, in game two. But other than that, I would love, like, there's a third Lysander I would love to have. There's a third Flowstone I would love to have. But the list is so tight because you have to, you have so many Pokemon that today I don't think I would change a single card. Gotcha there. Well, like I said, uh, second place, nothing to scoff at. And we certainly look to see more from you in the future. All right. Thank you very much, Pablo. This has been Stephen Reich from the Melbourne Park Function Center in Melbourne, Australia at the Pokemon... Oceana International Championship 2017. Hi, I'm Stephen Reich here at the Melbourne Park Function Center in Melbourne, Australia. I'm here with Zoe Lowe, who is the winner in the Masters Division of the video game competition from this weekend's Oceana International Championship. And Zoe, we just have a few questions. First of all, uh, where are you from and how did you get into Pokemon? I'm from Sydney and yeah, flew down here for the weekend. And I started playing Pokemon like casually from Generation 5. But competitively, it was VGC 14 that I started playing. That's pretty neat. So what were the Pokemon that you chose for, for this uh, tournament? Um, Tapu Koko, Tapu Lele, Gyarados, Garchomp, Magnezone and Drifblim. Yeah, I'm sure the folks at home have noticed a few interesting choices there that were not particularly common. Let's talk about Drifblim. Uh, what made you choose that one for your team? Um, well, it was basically uh, up to probably about, say, several weeks leading up to the tournament. I was having trouble settling on a team. And then I watched some Shoma versus, I think it was some invitational event online where he, like, dominated the field with this Lele Drifblim team and it was really fascinating so I tried that on Showdown and it was working really well for me so I decided I may as well just use it because I didn't have time to build my own team. And uh, also you have Magnezone is another very uncommon one. Uh, how, is, how did that come about? Well it was, I, don't, I guess Shoma was the one who built the team originally but it really worked well on like for me as well I think because the most common trick room users like Porygon and Gigalith can't really touch Magnezone unless the Gigalith carries Earthquake, which a lot don't carry anymore, so I was just banking on that pretty much. And to be honest, uh, when, when we were talking earlier, you said that you didn't expect to make it certainly this far. No, definitely not. Well, why were your expectations like that? Well, most of the time, like every regional event I've been to, I've kind of just like missed out on the top cut by a, a bit, like I've never bubbled, so say like, you know, at Sydney, I'd come like I think 10th or 12th and 
it was top cut of eight, so I missed by heaps. And then last year, I came 32nd, but the top cut was 16. So I thought I'd do the round the same this year, and I didn't really expect to go that far. So, yeah. So I'm guessing as the tournament kept going on, you kept getting more and more surprised. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So what were the parts of the team that worked really well in this tournament? I think Drippman Lele was really good together, like if I could get the tailwind up. I think in day one, I didn't encounter many trick room teams, so it was really easy just to set up a tailwind and then start sweeping with psychic with like choice specs, because that just obliterates everything. I think day two, when I started having to think because of all the polygons that were running around, and I had to play around that, so Drippman didn't get much use on day two. I did see it in, I believe, the top four match that they showed on the monitors there. So if people want at home want to see that, they can take a look there. All right. Well, let's let's talk about the finals then. Um, you were against a guy. He had a fairly standard team. Uh, what was kind of your strategy there? Um, well, I think, firstly, I was really lucky that he only had five Pokemon because if he had six, he would have been a really different story. Like, Katana hits my whole team really hard, but luckily he didn't have that. He wasn't allowed that. So, like, the Gyarados wasn't... Like, his Gyarados didn't burn me because I had double electric. So I just had to kind of play around. Like, Coco was the biggest threat on his team for me. So I needed to get rid of that immediately. That was, like, my thought through both matches, just to get rid of it and then I'll be good. Which you effectively did, yeah. The reason, in case the, the, the viewers are, are wondering why there were five Pokemon on that team, is he basically, when he filled out his team sheet, he... Yeah, it's he, a shame. Yeah, so be, double check your work when you do that, folks, and maybe have someone else take a look at it if it's a, for a big event. So, uh, lesson learned there. All right. So anything you might change about your team if you use it again? You did win, but it doesn't mean it's perfect. And, of course, the... Yeah, no, I'm not sure. Like, the Tapu Coco was a last-minute decision, so it's, I, I didn't use it that much in the tournament and when I used it, it kept just dying before doing anything. So I would have probably changed that. I still don't know what I would have changed it to, but not Feromosa. And yeah. All right. Well, congratulations on your win, and we look forward to seeing you at Worlds uh, later this year. This has been Stephen Reich with Zoe Lowe at the Pokemon Oceana International Challenge 2017. Hi. I'm Stephen Reich here at the Melbourne Park Function Center in Melbourne, Australia at the Pokemon International Championships Oceana 2017. I'm here with Asan from Poke Collection. And uh, Asan, we just have a few questions. First off, uh, how did you get into Pokemon as a franchise? Um, I got into Pokemon when I was in primary school back in the UK and um, I was given a few cards from the base set expansion when it first came out, I was quite big at that point um, and that sort of started off a little collection just because my friend just gave me a few and from there, from the Caterpies and the Venonats and all that sort of stuff I managed to build up a sort of mini collection and that's kind of when I kind of got into it and then anime started showing on UK television and I got hooked immediately so that's pretty much where it started I would say um, I was still in, I think in year 5 year six back then which is yeah i'm not sure what that is in the states but um yeah very early on all right well l let's uh, talk a little bit about poke collection then uh this is on uh, why don't you tell the folks at home what exactly do you sort of cover there uh, Poke Collection, uh, well, it first began just as Pokemon, but it's evolved into be it's, it's evolved to be a lot more than that now. Um, it's based around pop culture in general. Obviously, Pokemon's still a big part of it, um, but it's also about food, people, and the places I go, the places I visit, um, and um, just my life, basically, and everything that revolves around it. So that pretty much sums up what it's all about. But there's a lot of food on my social, but there's also a lot of Pokemon, and pretty much all the antics that I get up to with my friends and things like that. So it's, it's kind of a hub of many things now. 
All right, well, why don't you tell the folks at home what some of your, your favorite things you've picked up Pokemon-related over the years are? Okay. I think one of my favorite things uh, in terms of merchandise, I'd say the soundtrack to the the anime, uh, the first two volumes, I think it was. They released it in Japan, and I sort of like my dreams came true because I've, I've grown up with music around me, so music has always played a, a massive part in my life. So having having the actual physical copies of the, the the music from the soundtracks and even the just little sort of like little bits of sound effects that that were used in the anime at least the first few seasons that's probably one of my biggest things and it's just it's such a nice package as well it's got four discs and uh, sorry two discs each it's four discs all together and um it's just nice the way they package it up the other thing that i really love is probably uh, a lot of the cards that i've opened over the years um that's kind of a real a trip down memory lane for me um, so looking back at that just kind of t- takes me back it's sort of a time warp every time I look at that and I sort of remember a time and a place just like music and, and all sorts of other things that sort of remind you so I think those would be some of my major um, prized possessions I'd say Neat, neat I'm sure the folks at home love hearing that what's some of the stuff you've done recently? I've actually just finished um, recording a ton of, um, I mean, trading card openings for sure. Um, obviously, with the 20th anniversary stuff, there's a lot of products that were released last year. And so I've just played a bit of a catch-up game trying to get on top of all that. But I've uh, recorded some really cool videos with workmates um, who are familiar with or unfamiliar with Pokemon cards. And that was really successful last year. Uh, I just thought, you know, on everybody's breaks, I thought I'd quickly hound them and quickly say, here, open this booster pack and just, just just let them open it as they wish and to just see what happens. And so it resulted in so many different reactions. So some people knew the Pokemon names, some people struggled with the Pokemon names, and that's probably the best thing about struggling. I, even I struggle with the names sometimes, but it was just really funny. And some people actually started trading within the store. And so now within our... I, I work in a retail store, and um, so now people you'll find like Pokemon cards sort of floating around uh, in random places and people trading and it was just really funny some some people got so into it that I think I sort of turned one of my really good colleagues into a really a really evil manipulative trading person but um, uh, but it made for a really good watch so that was probably one of my favourites as well just getting my workmates involved and my friends involved um, it just kind of gave me sort of an ex- unexpected reaction or series of reactions well, I'm sure that sounds uh, really interesting to folks at home. Where can they find your, your stuff, your, your videos and whatnot? You can find them on YouTube. So it's youtube.com forward slash Collection. I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat. If you follow me on Snapchat, you'll probably find me doing many, many things. And a lot of that's probably going to be food, but um, pretty much like me having rants or um, just kind of talking about nonsense. Pretty much stuff that's not related always, but it's kind of bridges the gap between video uploads and stuff because I, you know, editing takes a bit more time. But if you want to see what's up, um, Instagram and, and Snapchat for me is the way to go. And uh, on, on Snapchat, it's P-O-K-E dot collection as well. All right. Well, thank you very much, Hassan. This has been Stephen Reich from the Melbourne Park Function Centre in Melbourne, Australia at the Pokemon Oceana International Championships 2017. Thanks for listening to the PokePress Digest podcast. If you'd like to find more of our great content, visit our website at pokepress.blogspot.com. If you'd like to contact us, send an email to pokepress at gmail.com or follow at pokepress on Twitter. So I 
really admired voice actors when I was a young girl. I was like six, and I really loved The Little Mermaid, because, you know, who doesn't love The Little Mermaid? And I also realized that Rob Paulson was the voice of both Raphael from the Ninja Turtles and Mighty Max. That was like the first connection I made as a child, that it was the same guy. So I was like, oh my gosh, there's a human, and I want to be that human. But I was like six. So, um, 